0: Thank you, Kaylee. Don't we have some talented teenagers around here? The other day, I was playing guitar just like that, and and then I woke up. I came across this crazy story last week, and like uh, many crazy stories, some of the craziest stories are absolutely true, aren't they? So here's one I'd never heard of before. In 1829, two men, George Wilson and James Porter, robbed a United States mail carrier train. Sound exciting so far? couple train robbers. They were both apprehended, arrested, and sentenced to hang, which back then was the punishment for robbing trains of mail. They were sentenced to hang on July 2, 1830. Well, Porter was executed on schedule, but not George Wilson. His friends had petitioned President Andrew Jackson to give him a presidential pardon, and President Jackson did so. But surprisingly, George Wilson denied the presidential pardon. So the courts had this dilemma on their hands. He was sentenced to die. He's given a full presidential pardon. But he's not accepting the presidential pardon, so what do we do? So it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and this was the Supreme Court's ruling. This is what Chief Justice John Marshall wrote in that decision. He wrote, quote, "...a pardon is an act of grace, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance." It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. In other words, he basically went on to say, in a nutshell, we cannot force the presidential pardon upon George Wilson. If he doesn't accept it, then his original sentence stands, George Wilson must be hanged. Wow! Isn't that a cheery way to start a sermon? Why on earth do I share that with you? I share it with you because I don't want you to forget this little phrase from the middle of the Supreme Court Justice John Marshall's statement. He said, Delivery is not completed without acceptance. Could you say that with me? Delivery is not completed without acceptance. That not only holds true for a presidential pardon, it also holds true for God's grace And God's forgiveness. I want you to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, as we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Luke. We find ourselves uh, today at the end of Luke chapter 7. Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter today. Uh, We've been on it for a few weeks. One thing about the book of Luke is the chapters are quite long uh, most of the time, and so this is one of those longer chapters. So we'll pick up in verse 36 and start reading here in just a moment all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 50. So here we go, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. What kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender, and one owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but... This woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I just love Jesus, don't you? What a great passage. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would bless us, open our minds, change us as we study your perfect and holy word today. We love you, Lord. We thank you for giving us strong bodies that allowed us to Get out of bed this morning and get in our vehicles and come on over here to church. And we believe, Lord, that you have us here in this room for a reason today. Would you speak to us through your word? And do what you need to do, Lord. Encourage us where we need encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Do your work in this place, we pray, in me and in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Encourage you uh, to pull out those message notes from your bulletin. There are a few blanks to fill in. Also some blank space there for you to jot down some notes along the way. That's a great way to, to glean some of the greatest truth from God's Word is by uh, jotting those down. Whenever I'm sitting and listening to someone's sermon, i love to have the opportunity to jot down some notes and review that later. And hopefully uh, you can use that tool uh, helpfully as well. And so uh, do take out those message notes and a pen or pencil as you still have those Bibles in hand. Well, back in the prior passage, uh, we saw what was was going on in those prior verses as we dove into that passage uh, last week. As we got into this passage today, starting in verse 36, uh, there's this certain Pharisee who's having a banquet, a a dinner banquet for Jesus. He invites Jesus to come into his home. This man's name, we learn a few verses down, his name is Simon. He invites Jesus over, and banquets in those days, if someone was at least somewhat well to do, uh, he probably would have had Jesus in the courtyard. He would have set up the table. And in those days, when you had someone over to your house as a special guest and you were well known in the community, it was acceptable for strangers to kind of walk in too. So my best guess is there were a few dozen people there around the table as this dinner is being served. Verse 37, we read, there was a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. There are three key characters uh, in this uh, setting here, in this account in Luke chapter 7. First of all, you have Jesus as the guest of honor. Number two, you have the host Simon. Number three, you have this woman who, interestingly, isn't named at all. She's simply called a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but our best guess is she was a prostitute. And she'd probably been plying her trade for quite a long time in that city. She was well known by the people in that town and would have been well known by people in that room even. And here on this occasion, it's certain in my mind that Simon didn't invite her to come in. She was a party crasher. And so Jesus is the guest of honor, hosted by Simon, and the unnamed woman is the party crasher. And I want to ask you a very important question this morning. With whom do you most identify? The host with a good reputation or the party crasher? Think about that as we dive into this passage today. I'd like us to look at this passage from three different perspectives. I'd like to look at it from a perspective of acceptance Secondly, from a perspective of awareness. And then thirdly, from a perspective of love. And so we're going to start with the first of these. Let's look at this from a perspective of acceptance of this woman. In verse 34 of this chapter, the passage we looked at last week, uh, Jesus pointed out to the crowd in Galilee that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had been criticizing him for being, quote, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can go back to verse 34 and read that for yourself there. They didn't like Jesus because he had this tendency to hang out with tax tax collectors and sinners and some of what they would consider to be the scum of the earth. And so Jesus, in fact, that was an accurate accusation. We know in chapter 5 he did have dinner at the tax collector Levi's house. No other self-respecting rabbi in Jerusalem or any part of Israel would have done that besides Jesus. Over in chapter 19, we'll see a little later in this book, he's going to go have dinner with uh, the tax collector Zacchaeus at Zacchaeus' house. So Jesus did have this habit of, of having meals with tax collectors and sinners, people that most rabbis would never associate with. But here we have an example, just two verses after that accusation in verse 34. Here in verse 36, an example of one of those upstanding religious leaders inviting Jesus over to his home. And Jesus accepted his invitation just like he would accept a tax collector's invitation. He was no respecter of persons. This man invited him over, so Jesus accepted the invitation. Jesus wasn't just a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was also a friend of self-righteous Pharisees who might happen to have a listening ear. So Jesus goes over to his house for dinner. Jesus was much more concerned with people getting saved than he was with his own reputation being tarnished in the minds of the self-righteous nitpickers. So some may have looked down on Jesus for having dinner with a tax collector, so be it. Some others might have looked down on Jesus for having dinner with a Pharisee, uh, so be it. If someone had an open ear to the gospel, he was willing to go to be with them and share that good news. Now, as we picture Jesus over at uh, Simon the tax collector's or Simon the Pharisee's house, uh, we probably have this picture in our mind's eye similar to the Last Supper. So let's put this up on the screen. This is normally the type of picture that comes to mind when we think of Jesus sharing a a dinner uh, with other people. You know, it's this tall table, it's it's nice and long, and all of Jesus and his his fellow uh, meal eaters are kind of gathered around the table. Then at some certain point in the evening, Jesus says, okay, everybody huddle over on this side because we need to take a picture. And and so they huddle over on one side, he says, okay, don't smile, just look natural, look natural. And so they're pretending to do something and then they snap the picture. This, this is what we tend to imagine with Jesus having a meal. But there are a couple... Glaring historical inaccuracies with this Last Supper painting. For starters, in Jesus' day, they didn't have tall dinner tables like we have today. It was more like a traditional Japanese table. It was very low to the ground, and most of the time you could slide the table under a bed. So they didn't have the square footage in homes back then that we tend to have today. They didn't have these 2,000, 2,500 square foot homes. They had little homes. And so they had to consolidate space. These short tables, they could slide under the bed. The other problem with this picture are the chairs. In those days, they didn't sit in these chairs like we are today. They didn't have these tall chairs. What they had were low-to-the-ground couches of sorts, and that's why it says Jesus was reclining at the table. This is more what they had in Jesus' day. So you can see what's going on here. Uh, Why don't we go ahead and drop some of those lights so we can see a little clearer. You had these mats pretty low to the ground, these couches that were low to the ground, and so what you would basically do if the table was over here is you would lean on your left forearm with your feet behind you, and you'd use your dominant hand, the right hand, to take food off the table, and you'd eat it by hand. And so that's how they ate in those days. Lean on your left arm, legs behind you, use your right hand to pull food off the table, and eat. And so when this woman comes to Jesus partway through the meal, it's very easy for her to access his feet. Let's go to that next picture. And so if he's reclining at the table, it would be very easy for her to come up behind him and start weeping over his feet and then begin anointing his feet. It's not like his feet were under the table and she had to yank out his chair and start doing this. No, his feet were already back away from the table. Notice what it says in verses 37 and 38. This woman, who had lived a sinful life in that town, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, she kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, there are four key verbs used here in verse 38 that highlight what the woman was doing. Number one, she was weeping. Number two, she was wiping. Number three, she was kissing. Number four, she was pouring. Those are the four verbs used here. And you're like, well, so what? What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. If you look at the original Greek in which the book of Luke was written, these four verbs are all used in the imperfect tense. Woo, that's such a revelation. Thank you, Dane. Who cares? Imperfect tense, what does that mean? It means this. The imperfect tense is used when it's an action in the past that is ongoing. So what Luke is telling us is this woman came in behind Jesus and she kept weeping. And as she bent down, she kept wiping his feet with her hair. And she kissed his feet over and over over. and she poured more and more and more perfume on them. So what's the point? The point is this. This woman carried on for an embarrassingly long period of time. As she is crying tear after tear after tear, as she is wiping his feet with her hair over and over and over, as she is kissing his feet over and over and over, and as she's anointing him over and over, Simon and his buddies are looking at each other and saying, Awkward! This lady's carrying on. They're getting uncomfortable. Simon's really uncomfortable. And he says to himself in verse 39, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. What Simon was really saying was this, this woman is a filthy sinner and she is not welcome in my home, and if Jesus were half the man that people say he is, he wouldn't welcome her either. That's the loose paraphrase of what Simon was thinking. Simon refused to accept this woman. But clearly, interestingly, Jesus did accept her. Huh. I love how Chuck Swindoll makes this point. He writes, Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus never compromised the righteousness of God. Yet he remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. Amen. He remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. No incident illustrates this better than the day a prostitute crashed the Pharisees' party. Isn't that good? Did you catch that phrase? He remained utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. To that I say amen. And that leads us to our first lesson today, a lesson on acceptance And it goes like this, Jesus was utterly accepting of deeply flawed people, and so too should we. Jesus was utterly accepting of deeply flawed people, and so too should we be utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. You know, there are two things that I've never been able to wrap my mind around as a Christian. I've never been able to wrap my mind around the fact that That Jesus Christ has so much grace on me. And I've never been able to wrap my mind around how some Christians have such little grace on me. It's blown me away over the years. I, I look at Jesus and he knows not just the mistakes about Dane that you know about. Man, he knows everyone. And it blows me away kind of thinking about what Frankie was just sharing a few minutes ago. We look back at our past and say, man, he's forgiven me and he's accepted me over and over and over. And meanwhile, some Christians write me off after they see one or two stupid things I do. It's absolutely remarkable. And as I think about that lesson, I have to look in the mirror as well. I've been equally at fault many times. I wonder how many times I've written off a Christian who goofed up one or two times. That's not following Jesus very well, is it? I've learned over the years that evangelical Christians do a really good job talking about God's grace. But I've also learned that we often do a shoddy job sharing that grace with each other. That shouldn't be. Don't you agree with me when I say that the church should be the most grace-filled place on earth. We do a fabulous job talking about grace. But when push comes to shove and someone next to us gets a little annoying or irritating or has an opinion different than ours, sometimes we're terrible at apportioning that same grace. But you see, Jesus was utterly accepting of deeply flawed people. And so too should we. I should be utterly accepting of you despite all your blunders. And you should be utterly accepting of me despite all of mine. If we're utterly accepting of each other's blunders and and, and problems and shortcomings, then that's a sign that we are hot on the heels of Jesus Christ. If we're both trying hard to follow Jesus, we've got to have grace on each other when we don't follow Him as well as we should. After all, isn't that what grace is? undeserved favor, undeserved acceptance. Like Jesus, and don't miss this, because we have a tendency to go to one extreme or the other. We stand firm on the righteousness of Christ, but are very unloving to those when they don't follow that righteousness too well. Or we're so focused on grace that we get wishy-washy on the righteousness of God and we get soft on sin. But don't miss who Jesus was and what he demonstrated. It is possible to be utterly accepting of each other without at all compromising the righteousness of God. And that's what he's called us to. Now let's look at this passage from a second angle, the angle of awareness of self. That first angle we looked at it from was that acceptance of this sinful woman. The second angle, awareness of self. So the sinful woman kept carrying on and on and on, crying and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and pouring more and more expensive oil all over his feet. And as she carried on, Simon began, I imagine, to have second thoughts about having invited Jesus over to his house that day. Thinking probably to himself, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Some think that he invited him over to his house as a trap anyway. I don't know about that, but... I'm thinking he had some second thoughts. He was getting pretty uncomfortable really fast with this woman carrying on like she was. He thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Well, being God, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking, so Jesus told him this little parable about two men who were each forgiven for their debts. In Jesus' day, a day laborer would make one denarii in the course of a day, and as many of you know, January 1st of this year, uh, the minimum wage in California was increased, and so if you're part of a larger company, the minimum wage in California now is $12. So if you work an eight-hour shift, that's about $100 a day. So we're going to round that 96 bucks a day up to 100 so imagine that's a day laborer's wage these days, 100 bucks. So to wrap our minds around this, we just do the, mat, the math. One denarii in that day equals 100 bucks in our day. So Jesus tells this story to Simon. This one man is in debt for $5,000. And the other guy is in debt to the same creditor for $50,000. Ten times as much debt as the first guy. So if both men had their debts forgiven by the same creditor, which man, Jesus asks, would love the creditor more afterward? Simon answers Jesus' question correctly by saying, I suppose the man who had the greater debt forgiven. Now, in his Luke commentary, Warren Wearsby really got me thinking about this whole angle of self-awareness as he wrote this. He wrote the parable Does not deal with the amount of sin in a person's life, but the awareness of that sin in his heart. That's really good, isn't it? Jesus doesn't want us to walk away from this parable focusing on the fact that one man was ten times more of a financial idiot than the other guy. That's that's really nothing to to brag about. If you were only had one tenth the debt of the other guy, it's it's, it's not like that. If, if you're the guy with the smaller debt, you wouldn't be bragging, Woohoo! I'm only one-tenth as much in debt as you are, you moron. No, that's not how it'd be at all. The point of this parable, first of all, is to illustrate the fact that those who are forgiven more tend to love more. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But the second point of the parable is to illustrate the importance of self-awareness. Even if you sin less than the next guy, you're still a sinner and need to be forgiven, right? Now Think of it this way. You and I go and visit the Grand Canyon together. And we're looking over the edge of the Grand Canyon. And we're looking at the beautiful drop off. And it's just lovely. And all of a sudden, ah, we both fall off. I fall off and I plummet a thousand feet to my death on the rocks below. You fall off the edge of the Grand Canyon, you plummet only 100 feet to your death on the rocks below. Are you seriously going to be standing up there in the pearly gates and saying, Woohoo, I only fell to my death 10% as far as you did? I don't think so. The fact is, we're both dead. Who cares that I fell 10 times as far? And Jesus is making much the same point here Debt is debt. However, the one who tends to be forgiven more will tend to love more. Simon the Pharisee was very good at identifying other people's sin, but he was terrible at identifying his own sin. Warren Wiersbe writes these words. He says, Simon's real problem was blindness. He could not see himself, the woman or the Lord Jesus Christ. It was easy for him to say, she is a sinner, but impossible for him to say, I am. I am also a sinner. William Barclay says it this way, Simon's impression of himself was that he was a good man in the sight of men and in the sight of God. The woman was conscious of nothing else than an urgent need and therefore was overwhelmed with love for him who could supply it and so receive forgiveness. I want to give you this lesson on self-awareness. Until we open our eyes and see that we are deeply flawed, and admit that we desperately need God's mercy and healing, we will never receive it. I suppose the greatest sin that I could ever commit in my life would be the sin of saying that I don't have any sin that needs Jesus' forgiveness. Sometimes we get off on a tangent about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what that means, and, and we could argue until we're blue in the face about what that means when Jesus says blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. But we look at all of Scripture, and this we can be certain of. The only unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because He is the only way to heaven. He is the only way to eternal life. And so ultimately, the greatest sin I could ever commit is to look inside my life and say, hey, I'm all set. I don't need anything to be forgiven by Jesus. Jesus, you go take care of someone else. I don't need you. And that's basically, sadly, what Simon does in this story. But when someone like this woman, who's not even named in this account, when someone like this woman opens her eyes and recognizes that she desperately needs God, recognizes that she needs to open the door for Jesus Christ to cover her with His mercy and His forgiveness and His unfailing love. Only when you and I do that are we allowed to receive that mercy and that grace and that forgiveness and that love that we so desperately need. You see, when we go to God and say, God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I don't deserve it. Would you please forgive me? God, who am I to be loved by you? But would you love me anyway? I tell you, when we pray prayers like that out of a humble recognition and self-awareness that we are sinners desperately in need of grace, when we pray those kind of prayers to God, I'm telling you, God is all over those prayers like bees on honey. God loves those prayers, and He faithfully answers those prayers, lifted up from a humble, repentant heart. Lesson on self-awareness until we open our eyes and see that we are deeply flawed and admit that we desperately need God's mercy and healing, we will never receive it. Third lesson we'll find with the third angle we're looking at this passage from, and that's the angle of love for Christ. Jesus shares this wonderful little parable about two men who were forgiven by the same lender, and after sharing it, Jesus asked Simon an important question. In verse 42, Jesus, I want you to look at verse 42 again. Jesus chooses his words very carefully here. Notice what he didn't ask Simon after telling that little parable. He didn't ask Simon, uh, now which of these two men in the story uh, mismanaged his money the most? That would be a natural question. One guy was ten times more in debt than the next guy. That would be a natural question. Who mismanages money the most? But Jesus didn't ask that question. He also didn't ask the question, Simon, which man was more thankful for his debt being canceled? That would be a natural question. But you look at the question Jesus actually asked, which of these men will love him more? What an odd question. That's a strange question to ask after sharing that story. We normally don't think of loving our creditor, do we? When you go to Wells Fargo and they say, you know, you're three months behind on paying your mortgage, and you explain the situation, you've been out of work, had that dang government shutdown, never mind the fact that I don't work for the government, but the shutdown affected me. You know, you're just trying to grasp at straws to try to come up with any excuse you can think of, and... And then she's looking across the the little desk at you, and she says, you know what? Uh, We're going to go ahead and erase those late fees and those finance charges. You just go ahead and catch yourself back up. Can you ever in a million years imagine yourself looking at that lady across the desk at Wells Fargo and saying, I love you? No, we, we don't think of love when it comes to forgiveness. We're grateful. We're thankful. We'll tell our friends about it, but... That's an odd question. Which of these men will love him more? Look again, starting at verse 44. After the man answered correctly that it was was the one that was forgiven the most, starting in verse 44, Jesus turns to the woman and he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. In those days there were three things that a good host would do to show hospitality when someone came over for dinner. Because all the men wore sandals and all the roads were dirty, no paved roads in those days, you would come into a house and your feet would be covered in dirt and dust. The first thing that good host would do is make sure there is a bowl of clean water for you to rinse off your feet. Jesus says, you didn't give me water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss. Guess what a good host would also do in those days? He'd put his hand on your shoulder when you came in and kiss you on both cheeks. That was what you did in those days. They still do it in the Middle East quite often today. What does he say to Simon? You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Huh. You did not pull, put oil on my head. And guess what the third thing was the good host did in those days. When someone came in, they would wash their feet. They would give them a kiss on both cheeks. And they'd put a little bit of olive oil on their head. I guess because the wind was blowing their hair and they looked terrible, they didn't want to look across the table at them. I, mean, I don't know. But they would put a little olive oil on the head. Notice what Jesus says. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So let me ask you, what came first, the woman's love for Jesus or Jesus' forgiveness? The woman's love for Jesus or Jesus' forgiveness? Did Jesus forgive her because she loved him or did she love him because he had forgiven her? And it's important to get that answer right because we could misunderstand salvation if we get it wrong. Jesus gives the answer in verse 50, the last verse in the chapter. Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus makes it clear that her faith in Jesus had led to Jesus forgiving her for her many sins. And when she experienced forgiveness for her many sins, she responded with overwhelming love for Jesus. And as she responded with overwhelming love for Jesus... She did what she did, anointing his feet and crying over him. This, this deep appreciation had welled up within her for what Jesus had done, forgiving a sinner like her. She loved much more than the Pharisee loved Jesus because unlike the Pharisee, she was aware of her own sin and she repented of that sin and she put her faith in Christ and as a result Jesus forgave her, he loved her and she loved him. She was forgiven much. And so she loved much. 2 Corinthians 7.10, I think, summarizes what this woman is doing so well. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. She had faith in Christ. She turned from her sin, and He forgave her, and then she showered Him with love once she had been given that forgiveness. Another great verse in Scripture points out that what matters is faith expressing itself in love. And that's so beautifully illustrated here. She expressed her faith in love by doing what she did for Jesus. Here's the lesson on love. The more we express our sorrow for sin and our love for Christ, the clearer evidence we have of the forgiveness of our sins. At the beginning of this message, I asked you, with whom do you most identify? The dinner host with a good reputation or the party crasher? I hope that you and I can most identify with the party crasher. Here's why. She was the one whose eyes were open to her own sin. That Pharisee was blind to his own sin and his own need for Christ. She was the one who humbly reached out to Jesus in faith and repentance and love. And her repentance and deep love for Christ provided crystal clear evidence that she was the one who was truly forgiven. Here's the kicker. If you want to know if you are truly saved, the New Testament gives us several ways to test ourselves to see if we are in our faith. And here's a couple ways right here. If you are at a point where you recognize that you are the worst of sinners and that sin separates you from a holy God, that's a sign that God's Holy Spirit has begun to stir in your heart. And if you find yourself when you go to Christ and you ask for His forgiveness, if you find yourself welling up with this deep appreciation and unexplainable love for Him, that's evidence that He has covered you in His grace. This woman didn't pour out all that love on Him in order to be saved. She poured out all that love on Christ because she had experienced the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ. And she couldn't bottle it in. Sometimes we have to do a check of ourselves. If I'm not as sorrowful over my sin as I used to be, that's a problem. If I'm not experiencing a deep love and growing appreciation for Jesus and what He has done for me, that's a problem. We need to identify with this sinful woman. No, we may have never been a prostitute. We may have never committed some of the same sins that she did, but we've got plenty of our own, don't we? And I want you, like her, to experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of Christ that only comes when we humbly come to Him and tell Him we desperately need Him and want Him to be Lord and Savior. I want to identify with her Because I want to be forgiven much, and I want to respond by loving Christ much. Amen. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful broken woman. I don't know what she looked like, Lord, but I imagine that she had scars. I imagine, Lord, that some would look at her and see one that looked war-torn and battle-scarred. And, Lord, You forgave her. You accepted her as that broken, sinful woman came to You in humble repentance. And I thank You that we can see in this story a beautiful transformation from brokenness to healing, from sin to salvation, from being distant from God to being close to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray if there is any arrogance in me that says, oh, I don't need forgiveness as much as she does, Lord, would you eradicate that arrogance from my heart? If there's anything in me, Lord, that's gotten a little cold in its love toward you, Lord, would you just pull that out of my heart and Give me a soft heart that can love you more and more. God, the truth is I have been forgiven much. So I need to respond by loving you much. Lord, be with us as a church. I pray that this would be a community of much grace. Where broken people can come. And they can say like many others have said in the past. This church speaks the truth. I didn't sugarcoat things. But I've never been this accepted in my life. Lord, help us to do both. To stand on the righteousness of God. To speak the truth of Scripture even when it hurts. But Lord, be a loving and grace-filled and merciful and forgiving bunch with each other and everyone who walks in. And Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways here in a few minutes as we go back to our homes and to our workplaces and to our schools and to our Super Bowl parties that when we walk through the door that there would be something deep within people that they can't even put their finger on it but it seems like grace just walked through the door. Help us, Lord, to be people of grace wherever we go always pointing them to Christ, the author of grace. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you much as you have forgiven us much. In Jesus' name.